0: On Thursday, July 20, 2017, James McGann, Senior Lecturer of International Studies at the Louder Institute and Senior Fellow and Director of the Think Tanks and Civil Societies Program at the Fells Institute of Government at the University of Pennsylvania, delivered a lecture entitled Think Tanks, Politics, and the Casualties in the War of Ideas. The lecture took place as part of the Acton Lecture Series 2017 in the Mark Murray Auditorium at the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Here now with his address is James McGann. Um,
1: I want to thank Chris and the Acton Institute for giving me uh, this uh, wonderful opportunity to come back uh, to Grand Rapids after 27 years. Uh, I uh, was Senior Vice President of the Executive Council on Foreign Diplomats, and I would uh, for a number of years bring foreign diplomats from Washington and New York Uh, to give them a more balanced perspective of America by uh, bringing them out uh, to the Midwest Um, and the sort of crazy part of it uh, I also took them on the Salmon and Idaho River so if you want to uh, have all diplomatic um, persona dropped is drop people on a class 5 rapids uh, and have them Put up and take down portisans. Uh, it's a great equalizer. Um, but in my visits to Grand Rapids, it was to uh, sort of uh, expose them one in terms of to uh, programs uh, in the Midwest, uh, and also to visit major corporations. So in terms of Kellogg, obviously, Stouffer and uh, Amway were part of uh, that uh, program. Um, and so I'm very pleased to be back And that you know, there's a dramatic transformation here uh, in Grand Rapids. Um, I'm here to talk to you about um, think tanks, uh, uh, but really it's um, about American politics and, and, and where we are and uh, the evolution of things, um, and I must warn you, uh, uh, although I will have very positive things to say at the end, my students uh, have um, because of my trend analysis, uh, called me Dr. Doom. Uh, so, But I promise uh, some, you know, important elements in terms of where we are and where we might go and, and the importance of that. Um, generally, I don't use prepared remarks after 30 years of teaching. Um, I don't need um, any prompts to sort of do it, but I, uh, have c- crafted this um, so I'll rely on the, uh, on the printed text and hopefully it won't be too stilted. Uh, in the 1960s, Bill Baruti, Sr., uh, president of the American Enterprise Institute, coined the now famous phrase, the competition of ideas is fundamental to a free society. AEI and other conservative think tanks set out to develop an alternative set of ideas that were intended to challenge the liberal orthodoxy that dominated policy debates in Washington and on college campuses throughout the United States. AI and many of the think tanks in Washington ultimately achieved their objective through thoughtful, independent analysis of policy issues. However, during the last 10 or 15 years, This marketplace of ideas has been transformed into an uncivil war of ideas between conservatives and liberal ideologues. Think tanks and their scholars are becoming the latest casualties in this ground war, ergo the title, Casualties in the War of Ideas. Think tanks and their scholars are becoming the latest, uh, excuse me, think tanks long recognized for their independent analysis, are now at risk of losing their credibility and independence as they get drawn into the polarized uh, conflict and paralysis we see in Washington and other nations' capitals around the world. How and why did this happen? More importantly, what can be done about it? The reality is that uh, liberals love to blame conservatives for their declining influence at the national and state level. They whine about being outspent by donors on the right. Conservatives counter the majority of the 15, 17 now, 1800 um, think tanks in the US are on college campuses and are controlled by the liberal elite. They also suggest that the majority of private foundations are of a liberal persuasion. Some scholars and journalists go so far as to suggest that liberal donors only support objective research, and that is why the left is losing the war of ideas. Such simplistic and one-sided explanations miss the big picture. They also enable the partisan merchants of fear on both sides to raise huge sums of money while providing a smokescreen for the shortcomings of their analysis. To understand what is really going on, we must consider the full range of environmental forces that are shaping both the think tank and policy environment. One clearly is the increased polarization and, pol- uh, and partisan politics the growth of liberal and conservative advocacy groups, restrictive funding policies of donors, growth of specialized think tanks, and narrow and short-term orientation of Congress and the White House. In addition, the tyranny of what I describe as myopic myopic, academic disciplines and the 24-7 cable news networks and social media all of which have impacted the ability of think tanks to provide independent analysis and advice. Data we've collected from 34 of the leading think tanks in the US found that the rise of partisan politics and the pressure to align politically is polarizing Washington think tanks and compromising the quality of their debate and research. At the same time, cable news networks have created a demand for sound bites rather than sound analysis, and we now have um, the dilemma of provocative continuous tweets. Even more troubling is the fact that some liberal and conservative think tanks have lost their independence entirely and have been captured by these larger forces uh, and a worldview that is negative and misanthropic. The convergence of these trends in recent years has threatened the important role think tanks play in helping policymakers and the public meet the domestic and international challenges our country faces. Partisanship and the class of cultures in Washington has reached a feverish pitch in the last, uh, I'd say, 24 months. For example, one think, ac- think tank executive noted that partisan politics creates a situation where there is no or little or no interest in balanced analysis because if a group does not lend unquestioned support on an issue, the group is thought to be an ally of the enemy, a very dangerous trend. How then can we think, think tanks address complex and dynamic issues if answers have to be defined on partisan lines? What would happen if the public became willing to dismiss a particular institution's report based simply on its liberal or conservative agenda rather than engaging in a proper discussion of the potential merits within a particular policy proposal? Such changes could lead to an eventual of erosion of credibility and I would contend that that is already happening. In order to be effective, think tanks must preserve their independence and objectivity. It is all they have. Their credibility is based on the quality of their ideas and that is in part connected to their independence. They must continue to support active participation without being drawn into the partisanship and ideological battles that are currently consuming American politics. And I'll stop here since um, I was asked to define think tanks, which I have, um, and it relates to this in that think tanks are public policy research and analysis. Traditionally, that's what people um, were comfortable with and also um, certainly in terms of the academic Pipeline for think tanks was very comfortable with that. The reality, um, starting in the in the 80s, is that think tanks no longer could simply research, conduct research and analysis. They had to and are required now uh, for their uh, for meaning and survival uh, to have uh, to include engagement. So the definition is public policy research, analysis, and engagement institutions. That provide research and analysis on domestic and foreign policy issues uh, to inform key policy debates for policymakers uh, and the public. The overwhelming complexity of most issues and the flood of information that is generated by them leads many voters to either throw their hands up or to choose overly simplistic solutions. This is precisely why think tank scholarship, not interest groups support propaganda disguised as solid scholarship is so important. It must be the job of think tanks to explore ways to effectively use television, the internet and other technologies to advance and improve the dissemination of their ideas and policy proposals. It is essential that these institutions not only incru- increase the measure of the listener mes- uh, the measure of listeners and readers but also truly engage citizens in meaningful dialogue on key policy issues because much of the money coming into think tanks has been donor defined project specific grants these institutions have been forced to narrow their research agendas and time horizons to meet the dictates of donors. Project specific grants are most damaging when the the donor directly or indirectly uses targeted funding to influence the research agenda of an institution or worse the research findings. Even more insidious are donors who try to distort the magnitude of a problem or attempt to alter the course of politics by flooding the marketplace of ideas with money that funds their issues or worldview. These distortions in the free market of ideas are hindering the ability of think tanks to produce innovative ideas and new research on truly important emerging issues. Think tanks now have a tendency to move away from any kind of research that focuses on understanding problems and toward an increased emphasis on prescription so that they can demonstrate their impact to donors. While many donors operate in the public interest, there are those partisans on the left and the right who serve as paymasters in the war of ideas. Why should donors who are neither the users or producers of policy research and who may not be acting in the public interest to determine the research agenda of think tanks. Think tank scholars must be allowed to conduct their research without having donors looking over their shoulders, trying to dictate the scope and nature of their work. Donors must develop more transparent mechanisms for evaluating and making grants to think tanks and must be more transparent about where money comes from. And I'll digress here for a moment. I mean, uh, I started my career at the Pew Charitable Trust. I was responsible for funding. Uh, think tanks was $11 million program. Um, the Pews, uh, in the early days, all of their, their grants were made anonymously uh, be, uh, for uh, religious, deeply held religious beliefs. Uh, but the more important fact is when uh, when I started, uh, we made general operating grants. And the as um, philanthropy became professionalized, um, there was a desire to move to more from general operating support, and we believe in the institution and trust your judgment and what you focus on, to Support of um, programs. You know, so we want, there are eight programs within an institution. We want to support this because it's closer allied with our, our interest and we can have a better sense of how our money's being spent. That then became, evolved into project specific funding, meaning we're only going to support a project within a program. Got even worse that we're only going to support X or Y scholar and the book because the big impact is on the book that has sort of hollowed out many institutions and required them to get um, through pieces of uh, multiple grants funding to support the whole uh, and uh, that in itself is is, is troubling for me in terms of looking at it simply because you, you need the money to go where the issues are that uh, people don't really quite recognize at the moment and more importantly Um, if the institutions are on a fundraising treadmill and do not have the core support for the institution um, it uh, distracts them from the principal uh, purpose of their research uh, to develop independent research and to be free um, to to manage that. Now understanding that as a um, philanthropy you want to manage your money well, um, the other deleterious trend that is coincident with the professionalization of philanthropy is an emphasis and allocation on evaluation, Uh, which my contention is that uh, one could do a random sample because most of the people that are in think tanks and in NGOs are not, are less inclined to, you know, uh, take the money and run. Um, And that a large, it's an onerous process puts additional cost uh, both in time and money on institutions and further distracts them um, from what is their important uh, mission at a time when uh, in all of these uh, trends uh, we need to be focused on very very critical um, issues that will face uh, or shape the future of our country. Think tanks uh, and think tank scholars must be allowed to conduct their research as I said, without having donors looking over their shoulders. Change, however, must not come from funders alone. The think tank community should be proactive in developing industry-wide standards in order to ensure the credibility and independence of their research and that their research is not jeopardized. It can be assumed that if a donor witnessed liberal, conservative, and centrist think tanks collaborating to help funders understand how their funding policies undermine their effectiveness, these deleterious effects that I identified, of policy research, they might be more likely to change their funding guidelines. And so that there, the, my central point is that the pendulum has swin- swung so far away from providing any institutional r- support to funding or requiring Uh, major evaluations and very, very specific um, funding support uh, without sufficient uh, support for overhead and and the operation of of an institute, that it has had a a, um, distracting, deleterious effect on think tanks. So donors and think tank community, uh, in other words, need to explore ways to foster greater synergies, collaboration, um, among the more than 1,700 uh, public policy think tanks in the United States, a broad cross section of donors, as well as citizen group policymakers, media, and think tanks, need to engage in a constructive dialogue that is more positive, more innovative, more interdisciplinary. The great unfulfilled promise of think tanks is their lack of uh, interdisciplinarity. Uh, and that's why I I focus on the myopic um, academic disciplines, which are the principal feeders for think tanks and mitigate against true interdisciplinary research. In many respects, think tanks should be, because they're not a part of universities, uh, places where truly interdisciplinary research can take place. Why that does not occur is, um, for me, uh, an important and troubling uh, question. Additionally, Um, and directly related to policy, is the fact that the choices we have, whether uh, in terms of health care, infrastructure, education, um, social programs, uh, the choices that we have are going to be very difficult. Um, The reality in terms of the federal budget, when you get beyond entitlement and service of the debt, there's virtually very little that Congress has discretion over and we have kicked, uh, because of the short-term orientation and the desire to be re-elected and not be honest with the electorate, uh, we have kicked issues down the road to the point where we can't kick them anymore. Compounded is the fact that the economic reality both domestically and internationally is that there will be sustained low or no growth. For a sustained period of time, which means the ability to grow out of uh, the problems we face is very, very limited. Um, That is where the innovation comes in, because the solutions to the complex problems we face will require, not in a political sense, but in a real sense, uh, innovative, creative solutions to the problems. And our institutions are not focused on those, the these forces that I've identified reinforce that and limit them from doing the truly collaborative, interdisciplinary, creative, innovative research on policy problems that will need <coughs> to take place. So, a broad cross section of donors as well as citizen groups, policymakers, the media, think tanks need to engage in this constructive dialogue that I mentioned that is more positive, innovative, and interdisciplinary. Most importantly, a dialogue that uh, acknowledges these new developments and challenges uh, in the U.S. It is through this type of synergy and collaboration that, in my mind, true changes in Washington and in terms of policy can only come about. And in this way, the energy and ideas and the power of ideas and the marketplace of ideas um, can be utilized uh, positively and channeled in such a way that the integrity, independence, and scholarly character of think tank research is not jeopardized, but instead empowered by change and the transformation that we need. This partnership between funders, producers, and users of public policy research is critical and must be forged now if we are to um, if we want the light of well-reasoned analysis to prevail over the heat of partisan warfare. So in terms of uh, key things that, that, uh, that I would suggest, I mean there's a unique dimension um, that Acton brings, um, being in Grand Rapids um, and in many respects um, it's exceptional uh, in a very positive uh, way in terms of its global mission, the marrying in terms of um, free market with uh, religious traditions uh, which creates um, in terms of in a positive way relative to other institutions a, an important uh, and effective niche um, uh, th- and so that uh, Grand Rapids in terms of um, this institute being here um, is very privileged um, to have it here uh, and is very counter uh, I must say and and footnote to many of the trends that I've identified. Um, That being said there are forces um, which I'll just briefly um, point out uh, that Acton and other think tanks both in the US and abroad um, are not immune from. Some of these, uh, many of these are detailed in the global uh, 2015 global go to or 2014 global go to uh, think tank index. I always start with uh, some major trends, uh, uh, either in a specific field or generally uh, in 2014, the, they were the general tr- trends. Uh, many of them really came home to roost and came into focus uh, during the last presidential election. Um, and it's a mix of both policy. Um, issues and um, uh, trends and some of which are technological, some of which are the changing nature of politics um, and the use of um, social media. In part what I think explains the last election and the sort of surprises, um, continual surprises which continue in terms of Donald Trump is the failure of think tanks Um, uh, and um, universities, um, political pundits, politicians, to understand um, what I describe as the sea of insecurity uh, that is present in the the U.S., and more importantly, um, the failure of politicians to understand and respond in some meaningful uh, way to the insecurity uh, that many... Americans uh, feel. The first is uh, economic insecurity, uh, which, in terms of many, have attributed to globalization, and some have suggested um, very simplistic uh, solutions. When the reality of globalization and the impact of globalization and the winners and losers of globalization will continue, um, and uh, it will easy solutions. Um, and promises that cannot be fulfilled uh, based on the realities of globalization um, need to be addressed. The second is physical insecurity which um, many would attribute to terrorism but I think the reality of um, global climate change, um, uh, the fact that there are, that on a daily basis, if you watch the weather, um, something is happening, uh, you know, what You know, some may debate the causes of it but the reality of that physical insecurity um, is a second major uh, piece. The third is a loss of national and personal identity. The fact in terms of, um, you know, that that, uh, Euro whites are no longer in a majority in the U.S. um, both in Europe and the United States creates a very unsettling set of circumstances not very often focused on, but the reality of which we are are now much more coming into focus in terms of 1989, the dissolution of the Soviet Union um, and the implications of that were, were speculated on and people didn't have not fully appreciated. I think we now are seeing in real time and the full implications of the global disorder. The, a bipolar world which you know, had its problems but was much more, much clearer in terms of, you know, who were the two major powers that held uh, the world and other groups in check. That is out world, every, you know, everyone's in charge and no one is in charge. That's a very unsettling thing that is, has creeped into the public site. The failure of governments to deal with one through four economic insecurity, physical insecurity, loss of national and personal identity, global disorder, has led to, which has really played into the last election and in Europe and around the world, a crisis of confidence in institutions of government and elected officials. The problems are there, the public knows it, and governments are failing to come up with solutions and they're, you know, sort of deteriorating into partisan politics and Policy paralysis, and then the final one, which may have been moved, should be moved up to the list, was information insecurity, which is, some of the elements are more recent, and thanks to Russia, you know, brought into focus. But Henry Kissinger uh, once described being a policymaker as being at the end of a fire hose—that there's so much information, so many requests coming at you that it is um, disconcerting, uh, destabilizing. The reality now is we are all at the end of a fire hose. Uh, that there is so much information all the time coming at us. How do we discern what is good, bad and dangerous? And then you add to that uh, the Putin effect in terms of, um, which is old spy craft in terms of disinformation um, and the susceptibility to that and the Marrying that with advanced technologies of being able to push disinformation in a much more pervasive and selective way at the same time um, has created a greater sense of insecurity and a greater sense of who do I trust. Um, And those factors, you know, are are reflected in um, in in, in terms of Facebook, that individuals now no longer trust their elected leaders or government, They only trust those who are in their circle of friends. Uh, And therefore, the the pervasive and selective dimension of messages, which Donald Trump used quite effectively, um, are a part of that. Um, And I would believe that in terms of the the specific tools of of Donald Trump's campaign um, will now be used more pervasively and that it's a very dangerous trend because individuals will be much more able to manipulate um, elections um, and populations because they can mobilize them uh, in a way that will have uh, quite uh, significant and destabilizing effects on countries and regimes around the world. So the final piece that I'll leave you with is that these trends, you know, in terms of one, here are things that need to be addressed, and then there's a counter dimension in terms of um, what I describe and um, you know, in 2013, 2014, um, as global populist, hackivist, and archivist, anarchist, and anarch- anarch- anarchistic movements. Um, that are now appearing and are empowered through social media um, and able to mobilize uh, groups um, that will have, I think, uh, increasing um, frequency and there will be greater uh, turbulence on the domestic and international scene. Now you see why my students call me Dr. Doom. One, they're able to energize and mobilize the public to rail against the system and be able to do a target, identify those who are susceptible or interested and mobilize them. Second, the reality which will continue is globalization and its discontent. It does produce winners and losers and we have not sufficiently addressed or understood the pain and suffering that the losers are experiencing um, and not putting band-aids on that and making false promises are only going to increase the discontent. The third, which is really important and will affect no matter where you are, um, the constant rate of disruptive technologies. I would contend that Donald Trump was made possible by a combination of disruptive technologies that empowered disruptive politics. The reality is that he was able to go direct because of technology um, to, and was able to cut out think tanks, policy elites, intellectual elites, corporate elites um, in terms of his campaign. Uh, the failure of, to see the overwhelming evidence that something w- different was going on and to understand that dynamic, was something that I, not because I'm in any way prophetic, identified 14, 13, 14 months before Trump was elected and I would be in audiences and people would recoil when I said that um, something's happening here and this guy is likely to be elected. Um, And the reality is it's part of these elements. (coughs) Uh, One, the constant rate of Uh, disruptive technologies and harnessing and being ahead of those disruptive technologies. Uh, The next is short-termism and quick and simple fixes. People don't want complex answers. They're frustrated and distrust their government and they want solutions and they want quick fixes. We have, as think tanks, have to resist that and inform but find ways to do that that are not the traditional ways of books and journals necessarily. There is increasing political polarization, and it is a global phenomenon. It is not just in the U.S. There is, which is related, and I didn't mention in terms of donors, a call for action, not for ideas. Both on the liberal and conservative side, that we know enough about the problem. What we really need is action. And the funding of action and action-related activities um, is not without its problems. Seven and eight are interrelated. Um, One, the increased velocity of information and policy flows. Globalization, increases in technology are accelerating um, uh, policy issues, shelf life of policy issues and politicians, which means that we're in for a very turbulent future. And institutions that are big turn slowly and are not able to understand and respond to what will be this increased flow, increased velocity of information and policy flows. Related to that is what I describe as policy tsunamis. Increasingly, everything is global, very little is local. And as a result of that, specks of trends will emerge either social, environmental, political, economic in one country will rise mushroom and sweep across the globe. Some of them will be positive, many of them will be very, very um, deleterious, very destructive. And those institutions that are able to be nimble enough and not predict, but quickly be able to help policymakers understand what the hell is going on and provide some sense of that, uh, will be ahead of the game. And this rise of global populist, hackivist, and anarchist um, is related to what is the the power of globalization and technology. It democratizes um, information and power. State, you know, 20, 30 years ago controlled all the information. Now everyone has access to information and power. That challenges most directly Knowledge-based institutions uh, that are in that business. <coughs> Finally, and I this is the end um, erosion of trust and support of key national, regional, and global institutions. The new phenomenon, in terms of what, in terms of the disruptive, disruptive dimensions on the international scene, that was you know unleashed by Brexit and and Trump, is that historically the challenge to global institutions came from the south, from developing countries. Now the challenges are coming from within the EU, from within the UN in terms of key members uh, like um, the United States and Britain. Uh, There is a positive part because in each one of these, and finally, um, there is an opportunity for think tanks. So in a time when um, there is uh, a troubling sense of how do you tru- who do you trust, where do you turn, those institutions that are producing quality research like Acton, those are going to be the institutions that are going to be increasingly be relied on and survive. Uh, those who understand that delivering a message in, a, in terms of books and journals that no one reads but are moving toward mobile devices, whereas if, you, you know, if I asked how many people have a, a mobile device, which is more powerful than most computers now, and will increasingly be the case, and where I sort of, in terms of the drive this home, I say to my students, how many careers, not jobs, are you going to have in your lifetime? Some say two, three, the number is nine. And so, you know, and, and if you look at the lifespan of the phonographic record, which, you know, ruled from 1920 to 1980, was replaced by the audio cassette, which had greater portability, went from 6 to 12 songs, went to the CD, 24, and I asked how many people, or my students, how many have iPads, or iPods, <coughs> and all of them raised their hands, how many songs does it hold? Fifteen hundred. Smaller, more powerful, more mobile that's the reality of what's going to happen and it directly affects uh, think tanks. Those that understand that and are able to, ad- pro- to not change the content, the content is king. The key issue is what form do you disseminate it in and what are the, mechani- the dissemination mechanisms that you use and how sophisticated is your communication strategy and marketing strategy. Do You know who your market is, who your audience is, and are you effectively r- reaching them and adapting um, to their changing which in terms of advances in technology will be quite rapid, um, changing ways in which they receive information. You don't have to look at think tanks, just look at yourselves, look at the world around you and you can see these fundamental changes and it's not just the students that are in my classes, everyone has been transformed. There's not a senior citizen who does not now have, is not on the internet, does not have a cell phone. Those things are changing and that's how people are getting their information. So I look forward to the questions, in fact for me the most interesting and valuable part is for you to challenge me, for you to ask questions that I can elaborate on. I travel (coughs) I've now traveled in my work over 30 years to 104 countries. Many of them repeated, I haven't done the repeat number, but so uh, part of the value of traveling also is getting a sense of what's happening in other regions. And since this is a global uh, institution, I'd be more than glad to answer questions. Well, before the questions, first, let's uh, give Jim a round of applause. (coughs) Thank you, Jim. Excellent comments. So um, we have about... (coughs) ten ten minutes or so so if you could keep your questions succinct
0: uh... we'll go left and right and we'll get as many done as we can you speak you speak of american insecurity um, how much is that related to americans relationship with god or lack thereof
1: well i said today I mean, i think that <coughs> um, that. If you look in terms of, especially in terms of economic insecurity, um, and I would, I mean, I use in my class as the example of Yugoslavia, uh, where, where there was an economic collapse and an ideological collapse. Um, there, t- there is both a positive response and a negative uh, responses that people tend to, tend to when, when all else around them, and this is the sea of insecurity, um, is uh, being challenged, is being undermined, that they um, revert to or cling to uh, that which they are certain of. One is religion, and two is national identity. And so I would, you know, contend, and that has two forms. That has throughout history manifested itse- themselves. There are those who, um, in terms of the clinging to use. Uh, that to either in a national or religious basis uh, persecute the other. There are those who their religion becomes a source of uh, understanding the importance of those things in face of trends and um, uh, the sort of uh, unfortunate part in terms of the human condition of, of doing things that are not so nice and, and are horrific. Um, And so my hope is that the instincts are toward the other, and I think clearly religion is a part of the positive affirmation of that. But it's, as history has shown, it's not always the case. And I think that is an important point of focus of how do we make sure that um, the horrors of the past are not repeated and that religion is a part of shaping, stopping those things.
0: We have just uh, talked about the Affordable Care Act over the last six months, seven years maybe, and there's positives and there's negatives from both sides that I hear. And and it seems like by Congress continues to lean towards the think tank that agrees with their thinking versus the neutral one, as you said, act would be. What would change Congress to listen to the uh, one that's non-biased?
1: Well, I mean, I think that the silver lining in the sort of Obama-Trump care um, reality is that it's, that the realization that it's not easy. And so from my perspective that, you know, that both have significant deficiencies um, and that the only way forward is um, by creative, collaborative, meaning bipartisan uh, approach to it because, you know each side can uh, and we have this sort of vicious cycle of investigations and um, excluding um, once one party uh, or the other from the development of major policy issues uh, which are flawed um, and therefore this is and that, and that there are no easy solutions I think the you know the the latest discussion around uh, the um, repeal and replace is that it's very difficult, no matter who's doing it. Um, and finding a creative solution that that will that we'll carry uh, will require you know people, so my hope is that coming out of this that that realization is that we've reached the dead end. What I didn't say which is the great tragedy is we are we do not have a lot of time in any of these issues and we are wasting massive amount of time in the shenanigans that are going on in Washington. And that are, you know, for both parties. So, I mean, the, ben- the sole beneficiaries, as we're seeing very clearly in terms of, you know, Russia, but clearly in terms of China. If we don't maintain our competitiveness, if we don't understand and have policies that help assure that, um, and it's not just simply America first, it's, a, it's much more complex than that. Uh, and involves a range of policies, um, we're going to be in big trouble, and the decline that some predict, and is overstated, uh, will be accelerated. Not because of any specific policy, but we're wasting, you know, years on uh, chewing up in terms of partisan politics, and not creating the necessary solutions to make us strong and competitive going forward.
0: when you be, when you began, um, I got the idea that think tanks are primarily uh, practical in terms of policy therefore they are based and concerned mostly with the positivistic social sciences but then you talked about uh, or you were lamenting the lack of more Creative and interdisciplinary studies. I wish you'd tell us more about that and be concrete on that. Obviously, Acton is interdisciplinary, theology mm-hmm. plus right. economics. Please say more.
1: Well, I mean, I did also say that Acton is exceptional, I mean, in that regard, because um, the great unfulfilled promise of think tanks is that they're not interdisciplinary, they're not on a university campus. The question is, why can't they create interdisciplinary teams? You know, one is in terms of funding, which I think is part of the problem. The other is what I call the tyranny of academic discipline. Because the greatest failed program at a university is an interdisciplinary program. And if you're, if you have, if you are an interdisciplinary scholar on a university, you will go nowhere. Because, you know, your promotion is based on, you know, publishing in a narrowly focused journal that is for your discipline, and that you publish books in that area. Uh, And if you're interdisciplinary, it's like you don't have focus. Um, The reality, which is the other compelling part of this, is the fact that no problem, domestic or international, can be understood and more importantly, solved by a single discipline. And increasingly, that the complex nature of issues and problems is coming into focus and we are ill-prepared for that, and the think tanks in the US, which tend to be more independent, meaning not a part of universities, have the greatest potential for that. The funding in terms of innovation, simple things like bridge funding. There's no money for bridge funding, which means that an institution identifies, because of the depth in a particular area, that, or knowledge of a particular area, that this is going to be an issue on the horizon. Um, no one funds that, because, and, so, and there's no slack because of the overly project-specific funding within a budget to move money and scholars in a direction where people think is going to be the next thing. That inhibits the potential of an institution um, to do the, the creative, cutting-edge research that needs to take place. And those are the, you know, two major impediments where I think, you know, funding should be directed and institutions should um, focus on because the problems are going to require interdisciplinary, creative, innovative approaches. And in part, even in the, on the more mundane, and <coughs> as I said, the, the solution, whether it's healthcare, is not, none of them are going to be easy and we can sort of get into partisan bickering about it, but that's not gonna get us to solutions. And the frustration and loss of credibility um, is in part related to the failure of government to deliver. I mean, and, and you know, one example would be, and it's not the US, if you look at Duarte and what brought him to power and the fact that you know, killing 2,500 people Increased his ratings. The only explanation of that is a frustration with drug wars and, and crime that we'll go, you know, whatever, however drastic the solution is. For me, looking to the future, that's the ja- danger. That's where we're headed if we don't fully understand these things. Well, we've got two minutes left, so <laughs> if it's a quick, quick one, we can do it. You mentioned several times the idea that the future is a future of no growth or slow growth. I guess we only have two minutes left, but can you give a little more context to that idea? Well, I mean, if you (coughs) just, you know, if you believe, you know, what, you know, major uh, economist, uh, you know, at major institution, World Bank, but there's a range of them, so it's not a single one, that that in many countries, and I would, you know, I was discussing with staff in terms of Latin America, that's clearly going to be the case and that the potential uh, calamity that that creates especially when you've raised in places like Brazil a large segment of the population um, in terms of both their expectation and living standard. Uh, you can do another case in terms of China. Xi Jinping's fear and the reality in China is if they fall below a seven, six or seven percent growth rate um, they, there's huge social uh, problems because they're pumping, for them, every problem is magnified. For India and China, like 10 or 20 times, because they're pumping in every year millions of young people who, want, who need jobs. And if they're unemployed, that's massive. And so the problems are less here, but the last election provided a window on the dissatisfaction, the disillusionment the sea of insecurity that people are feeling and the fact that government is not responding. That has to be responded to and institutions like Acton and think tanks have an obligation to come up with ways to deal with those in a real way because what we heard was a cry I am suffering and you aren't listening.
0: The mission of the Acton Institute is to promote a free and virtuous society, characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. For more information on the programs and activities of the Acton Institute, visit our website at www.acton.org.